This episode is brought to you by Levitt Pavilion. This summer, check out one of my favorite outdoor concert venues in Denver, Levitt Pavilion. May through October, Levitt is offering ticketed and totally free all-ages concerts. I feel like we just go to anything that's free because it's like the kids can be at the show and it's people aren't weird about it and you can like bring a picnic. It's awesome. Some of the free shows this season include Iskali, Melvin Seals, War and Treaty, Sunny War, Charlie Tuna, and more. To RSVP for free shows and buy tickets, plus see the full concert schedule, go to levittdenver.org. That's levittdenver.org. Welcome back to CityCast Denver. I'm Bree Davies, and you're listening to Mayoral Madness, our effort to get to know all 17 candidates who want to be Denver's next mayor. Today, I'm speaking with Kwame Spearman. Kwame, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. This is amazing. So you've been campaigning for a while, and I wonder, is there a place, like a new place or something new that you've discovered in the city as you've been campaigning? Something that you love, something new. So I, I'm trying to be Denver's next neighborhood mayor. And so I'm actually going into all of our neighborhoods and experiencing local businesses. And so there's so many places that I've loved. I also have the benefit, you know, I grew up here. And so I've been able to go back to some places that I, ha- that I haven't been to in a long time. You know, a place that I have loved is Revision on the West Side in, in Westwood. You know, Revision to me is fantastic because one of the biggest issues that we're not talking enough about is food insecurity. And Revision's whole point is producing food. They do about 120,000 pounds of food every year for people who are food insecure in the city and county of Denver. It's been amazing going to places like that. I love Revision. I'm just a couple blocks from there. Oh, there you go. Morrison Road is like one of my favorite roads in the city of Denver. It's a little secret, but... I think the secret's out, Morrison Road's pretty rad. (laughs) Exactly. Um, So you brought this up. You are calling yourself Denver's neighborhood mayor. What do you mean by that? You know, I think we have become too large of a city for one size fits all solutions. And one of the things that I can tell you as, you know, someone who's, who's led a small business is that if your employees and your customers don't feel seen and heard, it is really hard to get them to work with you. And I think right now, residents in Denver are not seeing, feel, are, are, are not feeling seen or heard. And I think their neighborhoods are feeling the same way. You know, we've got some really big issues we're tackling, inflation being one of them, just the cost of living in the city. Crime is on the uptick and, and we're dealing with unha- an unhoused situation that is, is just, it's not great. And I think that what the neighborhood perspective allows us to do is to go back into our neighborhoods. It's to speak to individuals. It's to hear what they're saying and to come up with collaborative goals and metrics that we can then use to have ourselves, excuse me, that we can then use to like hold our city government accountable. And and that's to me the way government should always work. And and I think we can get there in Denver. What's an example of of how this neighborhood-specific or neighborhood-centric approach would work for you as mayor? So let's look at like safety, 
right? Um, one of the biggest issues in Denver, I think, is that our neighborhoods are feeling less safe than they used to. And I think there are a lot of reasons for that. But we've got to have more community policing. If you go back in the day in the city of Denver, you had to live in the city if you were a Denver police officer. Now, 85% of our police officers live outside of the city and county of Denver. So there are a few ways that the neighborhood mayor would handle this. The first is we've got to have a police chief who outlines specific plans for various neighborhoods. The way that he or she would create those plans is by going into the neighborhoods and by understanding what are the key issues affecting residents. In many ways, Community policing is community planning, and we've got to have representatives from our police in those conversations, hearing what residents want, and then using those to create metrics. The other side of it is one of the biggest issues I think we have in a recruitment perspective is actually getting people housing. And this isn't just our police officers, our teachers, our nurses, our firefighters, our booksellers. They're all struggling to live in Denver right now. But I think each neighborhood wants to have the people who are protecting it be amongst the residents. And so thinking through affordable housing plans and thinking through areas to develop that we could do our best to ensure that the people who are serving the city have an opportunity to live in the city. The big thing about this, Bree, is that we need to have neighborhood plans that address these things across the city. We actually do that right now in Denver. Some neighborhoods have plans. Others do not. I live in Whittier. We have not had a neighborhood plan since 2000. And I think Whittier and Denver have changed a lot since then. And so my goal is really expanding upon things that we're already doing and putting a hyper focus on creating goals that are neighborhood specific. And then most importantly, involving new voices. You know, Bri, if I show up at a, you know, community meeting, I'm probably getting paid for it if I'm the mayor. My staff is probably getting paid for it if they're there. And yet the community members who are showing up and participating, they're not getting paid. That doesn't work because what it does is it creates only a certain type of individual who can show up, right? That person is probably financially secure. They may or may not be retired. They tend to skew a different, you know, to a very, very particular demographic. And what that does is it doesn't allow for a fully represented group to then be influenced and, and making these sort of goals along with the city. So, so that's what I'm talking about being a neighborhood mayor. It, it, it's really increasing the participation among the residents. It's creating neighborhood by neighborhood plans. And then it's taking key government agencies and, 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 and aspects of City Hall and really bringing them into that process into where people can feel seen and be heard. That's interesting because I've actually been on one of those neighborhood planning steering committees and it's uh, it's like having a second job like you're saying, but you're not getting paid unless you're part of the the group that's running it, that's organizing it, that's running it for the city. What what um, what were you trying to accomplish with it? Um, I was working on the West area plan. So it was like for all of West Denver. So I live in Barnum and actually my neighborhood plan hasn't been updated since the 80s. <laughs> so, um, But uh, what I find interesting about what you're talking about is really getting to something that I think is a stress point for a lot of folks is adding more police. So I know that Denver itself is having trouble hiring folks. And, but at the same time, there's folks that say some of our areas feel over-policed. How would you balance that? What is your position on police and the budget and their role in Denver. 
So I think the biggest thing that we've got to have is more accountability amongst our police department. If you look at the numerous lawsuits over the past decade that Denver police have had to endure, it really shows that at times there's not the discipline that's needed. That being said, Brian, and I can tell you this once again, you know, from my experience as tattered cover, when you dial 911, you do want some type of law enforcement showing up, right? Because you perceive the situation to be unsafe or dangerous. Here's the catch. We need to think about what policing 2.0 is coming out of the pandemic. And I think there are a few tenets of that. The first is not all times that you call 911 are for violent issues. And so we've got the STAR program in Denver, which basically teams up mental health professionals with our police. And so in instances in which there's a non-immediate threat, the mental health professional is actually leading the conversation with the individual or individuals um, who the the quote-unquote police have been called on. Right. And a police officer is there merely in the background just to ensure that the mental health professional feels safe at all times. Right. We need to have that program across all of our city. Right. Right now, it's currently just in downtown. To me, that's not good enough. My belief is if police officers are not spending their time trying to be mental health professionals, you may not need as many police officers as we previously had thought. Right. We've also got to get back up to where recruitment levels are on par. One of the things that I think this is a key contrast between candidates, I'm actually not calling for an increase in the number of police officers. What I'm calling for is we are down anywhere from about 15 to 20 percent of what the expected number should be. I'm calling for getting that back up to par in the same way that we are down with city employees, the same way we are down with teachers, the same way that we are down with nurses. We have jobs shortages, or excuse me, we have employee shortages for jobs throughout the city and county of Denver. And the reason why we have that is because we don't have workforce housing. We have got to have more housing for individuals. So one, I think that there are instances in which we are calling the police in which police should not be leading that conversation. The second is I do think we need community policing, Bree. I think there's a fundamental difference of when you live, and I'm not trying to call out Parker, for example, but when you live in Parker and you're coming into Denver to police, I think there's an us first them mentality. And that's not healthy. Right, We need police officers who live in the city and county of Denver, and we need housing for that. The third is we need a better pipeline. One of the things that I am really, really excited about to be our next mayor is that I think there is more that we can be doing in partnership with Denver Public Schools. I think one of the things that we are learning is that this notion of having a college degree to do all types of work is not necessarily needed. And in fact, we can think critically about vocational type professions that are incredibly, um, have good compensation, great retirement packages, et cetera, et cetera. And we can start thinking critically about how we get people who may not be graduating to graduate, to participate in these types of programs. So Denver Public Schools graduation rate is still only 65 to 70%. It's unacceptable until it's 100%. And so how can we start thinking critically about a pipeline where someone has the opportunity to start learning trades, getting credits, et cetera, et cetera, who potentially wants to become a community-led police officer, 
right? Once again, I think we are going to produce better results if we have individuals who are coming from the community, representing the community. So I, I want to be clear. I, I, I think when you call 911, you want the police to show up. But we have to reimagine our relationship with the police moving forward. And I think as our next mayor, I can do that. So I want to pull back uh, for a like bigger picture question, which is, you're CEO of a company. Why do you want to be Denver's next mayor? This is the most consequential mayoral election of a generation. You know, I, I hearken it back to 1983, where uh, a young Mayor Pena said, I want to imagine a great city. And Denver had a choice in that election. We were going to move on the path to being Cheyenne, or we could become the Denver we know and love. I think this is a similar election. We are ready for a fresh perspective, Bree. You know, we are ready for new leadership, a new generation. And, and I want to play a part in that. You know, it, one of the things that has been most exciting about running for mayor is speaking to people who are in their 20s and 30s and 40s and asking them, hey, this is what I want to do to contribute to Denver. But what do you want to do to contribute to Denver? I, I think people who are around that age, which, which is my age, to be clear, I know I sound a lot older on the, <laughs> on, on the podcast, but, but I'm, I'm, I'm 39 years old myself. And I think people who are my age are feeling the same thing, right? We, we love Joe Biden. We do. But it's kind of our time as well. And, and, and we are going to be in Denver for the next 30 years, and we want to play a part in building it. And Denver, in many ways, has some issues that we got to figure out. And I think it's time for a new generation to do that. And so I love tattered cover. I have, you know, arguably the best job in Denver. But Bree, I got to be honest with you. If we don't make some changes in this city, I'm deeply concerned that businesses like tattered cover aren't going to be able to call Denver home for much longer. And more importantly, employees who work for businesses like Tattered Cover aren't going to be able to call Denver home much longer. And so you put all of that together, a new generation coupled with this notion of it's an incredibly consequential time in our city, and that's what's compelling me to run. So I, speaking of the next generation, I want to ask you a question from the news, which is last week, students at East High School, well, we had a student from East High School died from a fatal shooting right outside of the school. Um, thousands of students walked out of class and marched to the Capitol, calling for more protections from gun violence. As mayor, how would you address the issue of youth gun violence in Denver? So that that shooting, once again, I I, I went to East High School, and uh, our biggest tattered cover location is across the street from my from East, and so that shooting um, it it resonated with me in an incredibly profound way, and. Last week, I had the opportunity to walk down to the Capitol with East High students. And Brie, you know, what was so crazy is the East High School students were acting like adults at the Capitol, and they shouldn't have to do that. They should be able to be high schoolers. And yet, we have in many ways failed on this issue. And to be clear, this is not a Denver issue. It's not a Colorado issue. It's a problem that we have in the United States around gun violence. We've got to do more. So I applaud what's happening at the state level right now about, you know, further ban on assault weapons. One of the things I can tell you, though, that I think will help youth violence is economic opportunity, right? If you believe 
that staying in school and learning and the ability to get a job is better than pursuing a lifestyle in which you're going to be exposed to violence and drugs, if you believe that your future is brighter than that, you're less likely to do it. And so what we got to do in Denver is we've got to have those economic opportunities for our youth. One of the things that I'm incredibly supportive of is we've got to have a better internship process, particularly for high schoolers, that allow them to actually work to make compensation. And the city government should help financially support that. We have, you know, we partner with Urban Peak at Tattered Cover, and we have, you know, 14 to 18 to 22-year-olds who are coming in as booksellers. Right. And it's an opportunity for them to see sort of the opportunities that are afforded to them in working for a cool organization. We've got to do that. We've also got to think critically about what programs we're offering and we've got to make a pledge. And I'm willing to make that pledge. No one should be hungry in Denver, Bree. And if you look at where food insecurity has, has risen in the city, it's absolutely unacceptable. And when you see all of those factors, you start understanding why people make drifts into situations that that aren't productive. And I think if we can help solve for that, we can get people making the best possible decisions for themselves. So speaking of your of tattered cover and your leadership there, I want to ask you some questions related directly to that experience. Since you took over as part owner and CEO, you've opened a bunch of new stores, but at the same time, you've closed the old flagship store across from Union Station. And there have been reports of tense relations with longtime employees. And last July, one of your contractors sued over unpaid bills. What do you say to Denverites who are worried about how you've run your bookstore? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. So so you've got to remember the context of which we bought Tattered Cover. So Tattered Cover was at bankruptcy. It was the summer of 2020. Um, and Tattered Cover had unfortunately been involved in a Black Lives Matter tweet controversy. And once again, this was before I came on with ownership. So half the staff had quit. Um, publishers, authors, Community members were signing petitions, they were boycotting, and the business was out of cash due to, one, it's just incredibly tough to be a bookstore in the United States, but also the COVID pandemic. And so I stepped into that situation, and we had a very, very clear plan for how we could save the business. We knew that we had to, that we had to grow, and we knew that we had to, we had to diversify the type of revenue streams, the things that we sold inside our store. And we also knew that we had to become a community organization. And and quite frankly, we've done that. Um, There is always going to be turbulence with with leadership, particularly bold leadership. But I think you've got to look at overarching objectives. You know, to answer your question specifically, I actually love the the old location downtown. That decision was made before we came on. We just were on the process of um, implementing it. Um, and so we've opened five new locations during the middle, uh, or during a pandemic. And I think, you know, if you, if you contrast that and listen, I, I, I love and miss book bar, but our campaign headquarters for my mayoral candidacy is at book bar because book bar wasn't able to continue. And so I look at everything I've done at Tedder cover. And to be honest, I think that's the single biggest reason why I should be our next mayor because leadership and vision 
it's one thing to just say those words. It's another thing to actually be in a situation to get those done. And so I'm incredibly proud about where Tattered Cover is today. Like all retail, particularly local retail, we're still in for, you know, an uphill climb. But, but I think, I think we're on the right track. So I want to go back to the second part of my question, which is Business Den reported that Frontline Construction sued Tattered Cover for $123,000 for work on a new Westminster store. What's going on there? Yeah. So, so Bree, I'm sure if you've researched it, you saw that we totally settled that. And essentially what happened is our Westminster location was scheduled to open um, much earlier than it actually did. We were supposed to get that store open in the summer of 2020. Uh, the summer of 2021 and actually didn't open until January of 2022. Um, without <clears throat> getting too deep into the details because everything was settled, we did not believe we were at fault for the late opening. We believed that the construction or that the general contractor for the construction didn't necessarily fulfill their responsibilities. And typically when that happens, you have a dispute over payment because one of the things I can tell you is that if you're not getting the type of um, job that you expect and if deadlines are being missed, there's obviously penalties associated with that. Um, during that process, I think it was maybe in, in January or February, they submitted essentially um, what was tantamount to a lawsuit. It was taken care of in 72 hours. There was no court, et cetera, et cetera. It was business dealings. And one of the things that I, I will always stand on is I, I want to run a business the way the business needs to be run, and I always want to fight for that business. And if we feel like we've been aggrieved or something hasn't happened, particularly when money's tight in a business, then you've got to you've got to push for the right outcomes, and and that's what happened there. So bringing this back to sort of this bigger picture of Denver, you're a business owner, and there's this downtown dilemma. We talk about it a lot on the show. Commuters aren't returning to downtown businesses are leaving. I mean, even a McDonald's couldn't make it work on 16th Street Mall. I, I wonder, as mayor, do you have a plan to bring downtown back to life? Sure. Uh, we have two tattered covers downtown. And so everything that's happening downtown has been incredibly intimate to me. And quite frankly, one of the biggest reasons why I'm jumping in the mayor's race. You know, Bria, I'll, 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 be, I'll be honest with you. Downtown has an, a homelessness problem. And unfortunately, that homelessness problem is leading to a drug problem downtown. And that drug problem is leading to a crime problem downtown. And you put those three things together and people are not excited to come downtown the way that they used to before the pandemic. And that decrease in foot traffic makes it incredibly hard for businesses to survive. And suddenly you start seeing an effect in which businesses can't even open. You gave a really good example. You know, the Downtown Denver Partnership actually tried to give free rent to businesses along the 16th Street Mall. And there have been numerous businesses that even with free rent have had to shut their doors during that process. So we've got to fix and help our unhoused um, members of our Denver community who are downtown. That has to be job number one um, because of the effects of that that I've had. And I, and I think as our next mayor, I'll be able to do that. You know, one of the things we've got to do is we've got to focus on innovation and services for those individuals right now. You know, I look at these sort of shelters and facilities that we have, particularly downtown, and we need to start thinking about metrics for them that are not necessarily just how many people are sleeping or using your facility every day. How many people are using your facility to get on a path 
to having a house or on a path to having a functional job and then think through city funding along those guidelines. And if we can do things like that, I think we can turn the right direction with homelessness. And I think that will have a lot of other um, advantages of getting things like drugs and then subsequently crime back in order. But we've got to do all of those if we really want to rehabilitate downtown. I struggle a little bit with this um, connection between unhoused folks and um, folks who are maybe have uh, drug issues or are misusing have misuse issues and then the crime issues. I So I, I just wonder, like, what is the step one for you in dealing with the I, I would say just the, the fact that we have unhoused folks in Denver right now. And that's like that to me is like the most pressing issue, regardless of where you stand on that. What would you do as mayor to immediately address that unhoused issue? Sure. And, and and let's go sort of a little bit deeper sort of on the connection. So if you go back for the past five years, we've had, and once again, estimates on how many people are in a house at any given time are, is, is difficult, but more or less a 44% increase over the past five years of the number of people who are unhoused. Largest concentration of that is obviously in downtown Denver. 44% increase, to be clear, is more than just general population has moved into Denver over the past five years. So for those who are like, oh my God, all these people are coming to Denver, we've actually had a bigger uptick in our homeless population um, during that same period. Here's, here's where it relates to drugs. I think it is very well known that drug dealers target people who are unhoused. Drug dealers target people who are in encampments. And what you've seen, particularly with some of the drug laws that we've taken from felonies, um, and we've lowered the amount of drugs needed, or excuse me, we, we've, exactly, we've taken, you know, some things like fentanyl, of which, you know, we had <clears throat> incredibly um, strong laws on it. We've sort of decreased the penalties associated with those laws. We've seen pervasive drug use throughout sort of downtown, right? And in many ways, once again, this is not to say that people aren't housed or trying to go on drugs. It's to say that drug dealers are very much trying to prey upon people who are unhoused. When you start seeing increase in drugs, you start seeing an increase in crime, primarily because people are trying to fund their drug use, right? And that ranges from petty crime to other types of crime. Denver right now is number one for auto theft. Catalytic converters are a huge issue right now. The Tattered Cover has had five catalytic converters stolen over the past 18 months. We've, we've literally had 15,000 cars stolen in 2022. The connection of this in many ways is to drugs, either because people are not in the right state of mind or they're trying to fund the ability to get more drugs. So all of those things are connected. Now, once again, am, am I saying 100% connections on that? I'm not. But I think reasonable people can come to agree that like those steps are happening and we know we're seeing upticks in all of those across. What we got to do about homelessness is we have got to stop accepting that people can live on the street. Um, I, I am one of the proponents of enforcing the camping ban. I am one of the proponents of continuing our street our, our um, sweeps because you see what happens when we don't. With the latter, the sweeps, Civic Center Park, we couldn't go to it when we weren't sweeping it. And even now with the sweeps, there aren't unhoused people there, but it's still not what it used to be. And if you think of why people are going downtown and the act or why people would want to go downtown and what that would bring from an economic vitality standpoint, 
we got to build areas like that. And so we've got to accept that the conditions of an encampment are just unacceptable. And so then what happens? Okay, well, in enforcing our laws, we've got to give people a choice. They can get the help they need, or we can help them get the help that they need. My goal is to have a better option than what the shelters are providing right now that actually give people an incredibly clear path to getting their lives together. Something we've talked about is we need a better jobs program in Denver. You know, our jobs unemployed, Denver's unemployment rate is around 3% right now, meaning we need more workers, right? And we need people who can do jobs throughout the city to keep our economic vitality going. We should be helping transition people who are dealing with being homelessness into situations in which they can be working, right? We need to give them the dignity of having a job. We need the economic vitality for our city of having them job or for, for them having a job. The other thing we've got to explore is that if someone is not in the right state of mind and if they are not saying, Hey, I want to get the help that we can, the help that I need, what can we do to help facilitate that? You know, New York City is um, exploring right now. They started in December with what they're calling involuntary holds. And having medical professionals or mental health professionals make some determinations that the state of someone who may be suffering from things other than schizophrenia might need more help. California is thinking of something similar with the care court, which is basically akin to having a drug court um, process of which, you know, you're starting to say to someone, hey, we're going to compel you to do these certain things. I think we got to start thinking about that in Denver as well. I think that, you know, as far as facilities or areas that can help these people, I think we've got to have regional cooperation um, with all of our surrounding cities and counties to do that. If you look at what Las Vegas is doing right now, they're spending about $55 million to create a facility that can help people really battle their addictions. We're spending $260 million a year on homelessness. Over the next three years, we're expecting to spend about a billion dollars. There is money to have solutions like that. So you got to do a lot of things at once, and that's why the long answer. But once again, you've got to get people off the street if you want to build our downtown back. Sorry, I just have one follow-up before we move on, because if folks are moving into jobs or moving into uh, treatment, one of the key things to success there is is housing, is, is having a place to go that's safe and secure. How do we house folks? What do you see as like the, the very beginning of that? If you're going to sweep people, where do they go? Yeah, re- really, really good question. We have about 30,000 housing units that we've got to build in Denver. And essentially what happened is during the Great Recession, we stopped building. And then immediately after the Great Recession, everyone realized what I've always known. This is the most livable, best city in the country. And a lot of people moved here. And so we've got to go aggressive with building in Denver. And we've got to think of where we do that. One area in particular that comes to mind is Upper Downtown, where you have a large percentage of office buildings that quite frankly were high vacancy levels before the pandemic because they were oil and gas based companies. And a lot of those companies went to states like Texas, et cetera, that were more favorable to their, to their business interests. We've got to convert those buildings to housing. Not every building can do it because unfortunately there are some um, piping issues associated with it. But every building that has enough piping and enough water to get into that building to house people, we, we've got to do that. And those units need to be workforce housing. Once again, housing for our teachers, our nurses, 
are police officers, our firefighters, right? We've got to do that immediately. And I think we've got to bring in city, state, and federal funding to transform that because that is the only way that we're going to think through downtown. Other areas that we've got to explore is we've got to go into communities where people are talking about being gentrified, right? And we've got to work with them to have community land trust and give them the opportunity to add density to those areas. If you look at, for example, like North Park Hill, North Park Hill has not had single family zoning for for basically its entirety of existence. They had duplexes and triplexes and quadruplexes there. We've got to take that to the next level. But the reason why you need a neighborhood mayor is when people hear density, all they hear, and I think it's understandably so, is that some developer is going to come in and it's going to take the plot of land next to you and they're going to build a building that has no architectural relevance or significance and you're not going to be a part of it. Not the neighborhood mayor. I'm not going to be the person who does that. We're going to involve our community members. If you go to our website, KwameFreedomFor.com, you'll see that we embrace the Vienna Plan, which essentially brings a jury of people from the community. We pay them for their time. They create architectural service, excuse me, architectural standards, environmental standards, AMI, and they put together an RFP and the city uses city dollars to help developers get on board with the project. We've got to do that, particularly in neighborhoods that are saying, hey, we are being gentrified. And lastly, we've got to think critically about our transit hubs. If you're in a helicopter, you should be able to go over Denver and see density where we have major transportation nodes. It doesn't look like that now. And so I think we need particular attention to those areas. And that's going to allow us to make a huge, huge debt in that 30000 And then I think neighborhood by neighborhood based development moving uh, will cover the rest. And that's got to be your housing plan. So I want to go to a question from a listener. Um, Kimberly H. writes, I would like to know if you are elected mayor, would you appoint any of the other candidates to your cabinet? Who would that be and why? That is a really, really good question. Um, There are a lot of people. So Al Gardner is an IT guru, and I think he has the experience to have sort of a um, IT 2.0 for the city and county of Denver. You know, one of the things that if we're going to, if I'm going to be the neighborhood mayor, I'm going to have to do is find better ways to connect. So we're going to have to leverage things ranging from podcasts to social media to how we think through things like polling. And that's going to be absolutely essential into connecting with people. And so Al would be fantastic from that. Uh, you know, I think Thomas Wolf has interesting thoughts on sort of how we think through our encampment situation. You know, obviously I will con- contract with Chris Hansen so we can plow the damn snow. Um, and, and there are many other people that I think, you know, can be involved. One of the things I can tell you, Bree, is that what's been really fascinating for me is, you know, you're spending all of your time and talking to voters, differentiating yourselves from the other candidates. But as soon as you stop that, we spend a lot of time with one another. I can tell you that every person who's running for Denver is running for Denver for one reason. They really care about this place. And it's awesome. It, it really is. And, and in in one capacity or another, I'm pretty convinced we're all going to work with each other um, because that's the way that we improve the city. And, and I look to be the mayor of that and work with everyone. But, you know, I think in general, just the collegiality that we'll have, I think it's going to be a bright future in Denver. So I want to ask you a question about your platform. You talk about psychedelics um, and you're one of the few candidates, honestly, to really talk about this. Colorado has decriminalized them and there are talks on starting about how we're going to regulate this. And you've also said that Denver has failed to fully embrace the opportunities presented by legalization 
in general. To the extent that the mayor's office has control over this new thing, how would you make sure to embrace this opportunity posed by psilocybin? Bria, this is where I think, and I, you know, without uh, knowing specifically your, your politics on this, I think we're going to be 100% aligned. Let, let's take two steps on this. One, mental health is one of the most pressing issues facing our state. Colorado is number one in the nation for under-18-aged suicide. That is absolutely unacceptable. We have to have all options on the table to treat mental health. And, and, what, and what we are seeing with psilocybin and other types of psychedelics, it's that it is treating people's mental health. And if, if you believe in actually solving the mental health crisis, We've got to test and experiment and be open and remove preconceived notions if things are working. And so I'm shocked that I'm one of the few, if not the only candidate who not only is talking about this, but is like, we are going to accelerate as quickly as we can, Prop 122, to get those types of facilities in the city and county of Denver. I I could not be more emphatic about that. And it kills me that when you look at the stats and see what we're dealing with from a mental health issue, that more candidates are not on board with this. Let's talk a little bit about cannabis. Cannabis is actually the most local business you can have in an economy because money cannot leave the state because our federal government, for some reason, has been totally asleep on this issue. So we have a we have a local economy here of which Colorado was one of the leading states on that is dying right now. You know the margins on cannabis are are so low. You are seeing tons of cost compression and we're actually driving people to illicit markets when we've got a regulated, well-run local economy here that we should be that should be flourishing. In addition, we've had the 10-year trial period on this everything's okay. The sky has not fallen, right? So what I would do is like our excises and licenses division is going to treat cannabis the same way we treat our other vices like alcohol, right? So if you can't have a bar 500 feet away from a you know bar or liquor store from a school, that's fine. Same rules for cannabis. Right now though, our friends in the cannabis industry are being are, are, are subject to what I feel like are draconian and unfair laws that are not allowing their businesses to prosper. And so we've got to do more on that. I think over the next 10 years, let's, you know, in year 2033, let's reclaim our spot as the state that understands the cannabis industry and is the most friendly to it and reap the economic benefits from that. Kwame, have you ever tried psychedelics? No. Okay. On the record is no. All right. Um, okay. So I have a couple questions that we we pull from that we ask all the candidates. They're sort of in fun. Um, being mayor comes with special privileges. And I think you could call up anyone in the city and get lunch with them. Which local celebrity would you most like to have a meal with? I, I We're thinking like Dylan Doug, John Elway, Jake Jabs, Adele Arakawa, Frank Azar. Nikola Jokic is a popular one. Oh, I would totally choose Adele Arakawa. I mean... <laughs> Her her generation of nine news, you know, Kim Christensen, Kathy Sabin, I think are amazing. You know, I'm not sure the direction it's headed now, but I think that was that was the gem. You know, that was when broadcast journalism, it just felt objective, it felt fair, and it did this job of giving news to the people in a way that it wasn't intending to polarize. And I'm not sure that still happens at certain stations like that today. 
And so uh, totally, I would love to reminisce with Adela Arakawa about that. You know, I, it's actually really funny. I interned at CBS4 and Bill Stewart was just wrapping up. Amy Spore was just wrapping up. Jim Benjamin was just starting. So yes, it's definitely going to be someone in, in, in the local news, but an actual journalist, not just a pundit. Okay. So last question. Um, part of the reason we're inviting all 17 candidates for interviews is because we really want to hear a fresh vision for the future of Denver. What is your vision for Denver? I think we can think big by going small. We have the most vibrant and beautiful neighborhoods in the country. We should embrace that. We should invest in that. And we should be a city of neighborhoods. I want to be the neighborhood mayor for that very reason. Because I want, when you talk about Denver, one of the first thing that comes up is you say, you know what? I feel like I'm not only represented, but I'm heard by my mayor. And that makes our city great because we're listening. And if we can do that in this city, we've got the best residents. If we can take their passion and zeal for Denver and actually implement that in our government, we're going to be in a great direction. But we've got to have a fresh vision right now. We've got to have a new generation. The question I always ask when I'm on the campaign trail is if you're not super happy with the city, most of my colleagues who are running for this race have either served in state government, city government, or not-for-profit that have directly been impacting the city. We need new leadership. It's time for it. Kwabi, where can people learn more about you and your campaign? Sure. So you can always swing by Book Bar, but if you are online inclined, please go to kwamefordenver.com. That's K-W-A-M-E-F-O-R denver.com. Kwame Spearman, thank you so much for joining me. Awesome. Cool. Thanks. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Mayoral Madness, what we hope is a 17-part interview series with all the candidates on the ballot to be Denver's next mayor. We're planning to publish these interviews each week leading up to Election Day on April 4th, and we'll be providing more news and analysis during the week. Subscribe to CityCast Denver and learn more about Mayoral Madness at denver.citycast.fm. We'll be back soon with even more mayoral candidates who want to lead the city.